welcome to Episode 6 of the Bureau 42 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. This week we're discussing Episode 6 of the original X-Files series, Shadows. So this is actually returned to form in some ways. This episode was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong. The last time they wrote an episode was Squeeze. And as we said, these people are going to put a few marks on the series. And there's another name that's going to come up by the end of someone who also put a pretty significant mark on the series. But we'll talk about that when we get to that portion of the episode. Now, one of the things I've decided to start doing is mention not only the original air dates, but also the IMDb ratings for these episodes, at least at the times of broadcast. So just a quick recap of the episodes that we've got done so far. The pilot episode originally aired September 10th, 1993. IMDb score from the users is 8.1 out of 10. Deep Throat was September 17th, 8.2 out of 10. Squeeze was September 24th, 8.6 out of 10. Conduit was October 1st, 7.6 out of 10. Jersey Devil, October 8th, 7.1 out of 10. And this episode, Shadows, was October 22nd, 7.3 out of 10. So it was the first time they took a break in the broadcast schedule. It clearly wasn't the last, but we're going to get a few episodes here. Running through the episode itself, once again, we have that teaser structure where the teaser does not involve Mulder and Scully at all. It does involve panning across a pretty nondescript desk with an office building. The name of Howard Graves is on it. There's a plaque that says, One today is worth two tomorrows, which was credited to Benjamin Franklin. In the background, we hear a woman crying, and the on-screen titles mark this as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So as we're seeing this, there's a woman clearly distraught. She's crying, taking pictures off the walls, pan across, and she's boxing things up. Somebody else comes in and you can tell this is a morning period she's asking if she's fine if she wants some water she's being told it's been a couple of weeks now do you want to talk and the woman cleaning up is saying that she's okay she just hasn't known a lot of people who've died we kind of figured this but it's clear that she's packing up somebody's office someone who is close to her the co-worker named jane is doing her best to reassure her. comes in with her latest paycheck which again is a sign that the series is 20 years old there's not a lot of jobs these days where you still get a physical paycheck as she's leaving the plaque on the desk moves. Lauren hears it. She's a little bit curious, but doesn't really seem to recognize the fact that this thing apparently moved on its own. From here, cut to an ATM, and this is an old-school ATM. There's no braille. There's barely any screen on it. It's still pretty early in the technology. And while she's there, she's attacked by a couple men who are dragging her away. She's saying she has no money. What we see, again, it's what we don't see. So she's attacked, and we just see shadows on the walls from some of the ambient lighting. Cut to two hours later, and there's a couple of people looking for food and you know, in a dumpster, they're looking for a place to crash, they decide that they're going to crash up a fire escape and through a window. Now, this is one of the things I don't quite get. So we got a couple of teenagers in an alley. They're shaking a fire escape loose. We get a good shot at the fire escape. And when they do get this ladder unstuck so it comes down, a couple of bodies fall out. And these are the same guys who are attacking the woman. They scream. What I don't get is why these guys weren't visible before. Anyway, from here, we cut to the opening credits. So this episode was directed by Michael Cattleman, and it's actually the only episode of the series that he's directed as well, although he does have a fairly lengthy set of credits on a number of other shows. After the credits, we cut to Mulder and Scully being brought in and at a late hour. It's down a hallway, the lights are dim. Again, they seem to be looking for excuses to keep the lights dim and establish that kind of mood in the series. So Mulder and Scully are greeted by someone who says, Chief Blevins assures your cooperation. We regret any inconvenience in the extreme hour, and they're hoping that the expertise in 
extraordinary phenomenon will help. And Mulder recognizes these people are not FBI. It's also worth noting that, again, they seem to be reporting directly to Section Chief Blevins. We know that that's going to change down the road if we've already seen the series. In any event, they're being asked to examine a couple of corpses, one of whom is still moving several hours after death due to some sort of extreme electrostatic charge. So Mulder's got his glasses on as he's going through the charts. He asks about a time of death, and they haven't provided one. Scully feels the body says, well, it can't be too long. The bodies are still warm, and that's when they find out it's been six hours, and their body temperatures have yet to drop below 98.3, presumably in Fahrenheit. Mulder asks, where did you find them? And again, no answers are forthcoming. And he's demanding at least timeline and method of transport, because, you know, he's getting frustrated. They're wanting some answers, and they're getting stonewalled every point of the way. These people are not cooperating with Mulder and Scully at all. Well, he gets frustrated, he takes the glasses off as he's doing it, and he's told they were transported 60 minutes by air. Mulder says, thank you. So while he's still standing between the bodies, he's being told there's also a lot of damage to the inside of the throats. It's as if the throats were crushed from the inside. So there's no external trauma, but there's broken bones and that sort of thing. Mulder asks for IDs. Scully says, well, if you've already done your examinations, why are you consulting us? And they're asked, working on the X-Files, have you ever seen anything like this? Mulder says, never. Scully gives him a look. And they're basically told, okay, if you have no experience, thank you. If anyone asks about this meeting, we appreciate full denial. And Mulder says, you're already experiencing full denial. So Mulder and Scully leave. They get out in the hallway. When they're out of earshot, Scully tells him flat out, you lied. You have seen this before. You can tell you lied to them. Mulder says, I've never lied. I willfully participated in a campaign of misinformation. And they're not even sure who these guys are, but somebody that Congress will uncover in the next scandal. It's not important who they are. It's what they have. I'm sure they have no idea because they called us in. And Mulder starts talking about X-Files that have some of the individual elements of this case, but none of them have it all in one spot. The ultrastatic charge, the esophagus crushed from the inside, it's all there. Mulder's theory right now is psychokinesis. So again, you see, Scully's skepticism is coming through. She agrees there's something to investigate, but she's not willing to put psychokinesis on the table, at least not yet. And Scully's going, okay, I am intrigued. There is something to investigate, but we have nothing to go on. At which point Mulder takes the glasses that he pulled off when he was getting stonewalled, fogs them up, and this is when we find out he used those lenses to take fingerprints of both bodies. We cut from here to the woman who was assaulted at the ATM, who now seems perfectly fine. She was not mentioned at any point in the investigation, and she's back in the office, very nervous and agitated, pulls up a newspaper, and she starts going through it. Now there's somebody in the office who is clearly not impressed with her, talking about how, you know, Mr. Graves used to let her come in late. Mr. Dorlin is in charge now. He doesn't tolerate that. And Lauren's asking to see him very quickly, and she's also getting stonewalled. When she does, the secretary's coffee mug jumps, spills on her. Lauren's much more upset than she was when she saw the placard move on his desk. Anyway, at this point, Mr. Dorland comes out of the office, asks if everything's all right. Lauren asks to speak to him, and he lets her come in immediately. We get a little bit of duplicity from Dorland. He starts off very open, very welcoming, very reassuring. At this point, Lauren resigns, and Dorland is not happy about this. He initially starts off trying to be understanding and trying to be comforting, but in the process, it starts to get threatening. He starts off talking about the history of the company. She's been there almost since the beginning, and it felt like he was Howard's brother, and Lauren was a daughter, so by extension, he feels close to her. He wants to take care of his family, you know, and he's seeing her something like a niece. He asks her to stay, and basically tells her to stay. The company needs you, and he's not going to let her leave. So it does become quite threatening very quickly, which is at the point where his band on his wrist suddenly tightens. This is where he lets go of Lauren, and he had been gripping her. She is very much disturbed and just can't be here anymore, is the way she puts it. Cut from here, back to the FBI headquarters with some bulky CRT monitors. As Mulder's pulling up the records, 
on the two bodies in the morgue. Turns out these guys who appeared to be mugging Lauren were not just straight-up muggers. These guys were terrorists who were last known working out of Philadelphia. So the audience knows that this was happening in Philadelphia, but Mulder and Scully didn't have that at this point. All they knew for sure is that they was 60 minutes away by air. We cut from them back to nighttime in Philadelphia, talking to the officer who found these bodies on patrol. And as he says, the people who come around here after hours don't witness very much. You know what I'm saying. So those two teenagers who found the bodies weren't seen from again. At this point, Mulder notices the ATM around the corner. And again, you could tell that this is 1993 when it's coming out. So we cut from here to the ATM video footage, and they explicitly tell the audience that ATMs do take pictures of everyone who is using that machine in every transaction. And they catch Lauren's attack on film, which up to this point had gone unreported. And in one frame of the film, there's something blurry in the background. The ATM records do let them know that this is Lauren Kite, and they've got her home address. So they're trying to figure out, well, why would the terrorists be robbing someone at an ATM machine? But Mulder's much more interested in the blur in the background. So we could tell he's no longer thinking psychokinesis. One of the things I do like about this episode is they make a point of saying the resolution's too low, they can't enhance it much. So it's one of the few shows I've ever seen that recognizes the fact that you can't blow up and enhance film to arbitrary resolution and create information that was not recorded in the first place. You can interpolate, there's a lot of algorithms that improve it, but you can't take a six pixel by six pixel face and turn it into an exact picture of that person. It just doesn't happen. From here we cut to Lauren at home and she's packing up. She's not just quitting his job, she's leaving town. And she has that plaque with the Ben Franklin quote on her mantelpiece. So she has kept that much of Howard's as a souvenir. She gets distracted when Mulder and Scully show up and they're coming to ask her questions. Now at this point, she is not forthcoming in her answers. She clearly just wants to be left alone, wants to get on with her life and leave all of this behind her. Scully is questioning her and Lauren is flat out lying. She says she does not recognize her attacker. She's never seen them before. And it's not until they pull out the photos saying, yes, you have seen them before that she admits. And this time she's saying she just didn't want to report it. She was scared. So, this is another case of the X-Files finding some pretty strong guest stars. A lot of this episode hinges on the character of Laura. So we need to believe that this is someone who is scared for herself, scared for her others. She did have a strong relationship with Howard. She has to be afraid of the other people. And in this case, she reacts to the blurry face on the film. And Lisa Waltz is the guest actress here, and she does sell this role quite effectively. I think much more effectively than Barry Primus playing Robert Dorley. He's not terrible, but he does seem like one of those actors who will keep getting guest starring roles when they're looking for a particular look in a role that maybe not be as pivotal. Anyway, leaving Mulder and Scully agree that this woman is hiding something and that there's no chance she broke free from those guys. The woman of her size crushed her necks. It's just her story does not add up. And Scully's theory is she has an accomplice and that's what she's running away from. When they get in, the car seems to take off on its own. Now, we're still in the stage where Scully doesn't see anything. Mulder sees the gear shift lever take off on its own. He sees the parking brake pull up. They're driven in reverse down the hill into an accident. Scully sees the car after it's run away. She doesn't see the parts moving on their own. Not even the doors locking. Mulder sees Lauren in the windows and she's scared. But everyone seems okay. We cut to the mechanics where the car is being looked at. After the paramedics have cleared them, they just have a couple massive headaches, that's it. There's a lot of dents in the side of the car. It's a brand new car. It's only got 100 miles on it. And again, they're putting things together with the case. They've got electrostatic charge in the car itself, which is why the headlights are still on, even though they're turned off. This is another part that bugs me. Electrostatic charge is stationary charge. In order to get the filaments to glow, you have to have a current running through them. So electrostatic charge could have an impact... Right, but it's more like a balloon. It's not going to make something light up. 
It's going to cause sparks. It's going to, you know, maybe distort electronics. It's going to shock the people who try to get in, but it's not going to make headlights glow. You'd need to have flowing charge for that. But again, that's just the physics guy in me. It's one of those cases where the fictional world, the fictional science just doesn't wash. You would have to have some sort of phantom current, not a phantom electrostatic charge. Mulder is still thinking it's something about the psychokinetic capacity. He's still working on the theory that she has the psychokinetic ability. Keep in mind, Mulder and Scully don't yet know about the death Peter Graves. Although Mulder does propose a poltergeist. And of course, Scully makes the they're here with a poltergeist reference. This is also the point where the audience finds out, as part of Scully's monologue, the company that Lauren worked for has a lot of defense department contracts. So this is where Scully's going with it. She doesn't see it as a paranormal issue, she sees it as a defense department issue. After she says that and goes to the mundane, the lights turn themselves off. Now from here we cut to Lauren pulling up at work while Mulder and Scully are already there, basically staking it out watching for her. And she freaks out when she sees someone painting over the name of Howard Graves on the parking lot, and he's got a stencil out to put up a new name. Now, this is a bit of an in-joke, and it's the name I mentioned that we're going to be seeing a lot of. The name that's about to be stenciled on here is Tom Braidwood. Now, Tom Braidwood was a second assistant director for the run of the show. He also shows up later on as a member of the cast, but that doesn't come until later this season. But this is the hint Mulder and Scully need. So they go back to the microfiche and they pull up Howard Graves and start looking into him. They find out that he was a secretary. So that's another person dead in the general proximity of Lauren Kite on top of the two attackers. Mulder and Scully go to the cemetery. And again, they've cast a perfect character actor as one of the groundskeepers. He says he attends every funeral. He's right there. Even when they're there, they see Lauren Kite at the headstone of Howard Graves, who's right next to the headstone of a three-year-old whose last name was also Graves. And it's the the Undertaker there, again, a little bit creepy, not trying to be creepy, but they just cast someone who's got a cadence that's a little bit off in his speech. So you believe this is a guy who would devote himself to working in a cemetery, attending every funeral, and takes it upon himself to make sure that he's the last person to see everyone being put to rest. It also helps expedite the story. So they don't need to go to another location. They don't need to find the files on these graves. This guy remembers he can tell them Howard Graves didn't latch the pool gate. The girl drowned before she could be found and saved, and Graves' wife left him about a year later, and you can point them to Mrs. Graves' plot. But it's enough that Mulder and Scully start putting it together, and they start to understand the relationship relationship that Lauren had with the dead man because I realize yeah Lauren's about that age which again ages the show because watching it it's clear the actress as she appears on screen was definitely not born in 1966 this is another thing that sets the X-Files apart in terms of casting a lot of series that will just have the one-time cast that's supposed to be sympathetic they cast more for the appearance of the actor or actress than about the ability at the time this was especially true of the Fox Network now Lisa Waltz is very attractive but not like you'd see on say Baywatch which was the other drama that had worked very well for Fox or with Beverly Hills 90210. So it's attractive, but more in the person you see on the street attractive level, not person they cast from a modeling agency kind of level. So we see Scully working on a report, and again, she's focused on, we need an accomplice for Laura and Kite. We need to know who's helping her with this. While Mulder is going through photos he's developed that were surveillance photos taken of Lauren's house. And he sees someone in the background that's not particularly clear. Now this they do start to get enhancements of, but this is a little more plausible when he's got the high-quality film that's taken for surveillance photos, and they've got all the developing, all the FBI tools behind it. And they find an image of Howard Graves standing behind Lauren in one of these images. Now this is one of the things that doesn't quite sit right with me early on. There's Mulder, there's Scully, and there's the image processing tech. 
Scully immediately says, oh, Howard Graves is still alive. Mulder says, not necessarily. Scully reacts to the comment that, yes, there's a dead guy on this film. The image tech guy doesn't. He sits there completely stone-faced. So he's been told to blend into the background, apparently. And to me, that just makes him stand out more, because really, who would not have reacted to that statement? From here, we cut to yet another nighttime scene. And this is Lauren hearing things in her house. So she's getting out of bed, grabs a baseball bat that she keeps in the closet. So clearly she's got a little bit of paranoia in her to begin with, although it may not be unwarranted for a woman living alone. And this is where we get confirmation of something that, by this point, most of our audience has probably suspected up to this time. She is essentially led to the bathroom by hearing Howard's voice, but it's not that he's speaking to her directly. It appears to be echoes of an earlier conversation, and in particular, the one that happened at the time of his death. She follows him to the bathroom. When she gets into the bathroom and pulls back the curtain, she sees the bathtub is filled not just with water, but she sees jets of blood coming out. While it's clear that the special effects crew had high-pressure jets spraying the fluid into the bathtub, it also seems to show Lauren Howard's wrists were cut by someone else, and it was not a suicide. Come back from commercial, and there's Mulder and Scully going to Ellen Bledsoe's office to investigate, and Scully says, Howard Graves faked his own death, to which Mulder responds, only one person has ever done that successfully, Elvis. It's incredibly difficult, and admits that, yeah, Scully, you may be right, which surprises Scully. She's not expecting Mulder to come out on her side of this one. Although, when Mulder says that, he says, all you need to do is prove that Howard Graves is still alive. They're about to go in and talk to the coroner. Now, again, this is a case of strong casting in the guest stars on The X-Files. The coroner is Lorena Gale. Now, she's probably best known to Bureau of 42 readers from her role as Elosha in Battlestar Galactica, both in the miniseries and in the extended series that grew out of it. She's also had guest spots on Smallville, on Supernatural. Apparently, at the age of 46, she played Old Lady with car number one in Fantastic Four, which makes me question how at least the people behind Fantastic Four decide someone is old. Could explain why they didn't cast a early 40s man as Reed Richards, as would have been in with the canon. At any rate, conversation cuts directly to this coroner saying Howard Graves is very dead. They check the autopsy report. Scully is a little surprised by this. Mulder doesn't seem to be surprised at all. Apparently, four out of six liters of Howard Graves' blood went down the bathtub. So the body was cremated. Scully is saying there's blood work missing, and they're going, well, they only do it when you suspect a homicide. Mulder asks, did you get to confirmations? Blood so was, what for? It was him. How'd you know it was, that it was Howard Graves? Well, it said so on the toe tag. So again, they're getting blocked by someone who clearly thinks they're wasting her time. And they find out that it was Lauren who confirmed the identity, and that he was cremated. So Mulder's saying, well, there's no way to do the identifying now. Scully says, oh, yes, there is. He was an organ donor. Yeah, they have harvested the organs, but this is a case of X-Files, again, stretching their dollar by using location shooting. So they cut to the tissue bank. Once again, they're using location shooting at actual labs. One of the advantages to shooting in Vancouver is that there's a lot of local universities and a lot of local labs who don't have the same level of funding as a lot of U.S. universities, so they let you come in and do location shoots. There's quite a few scenes that were shot at Simon Fraser and at UBC. I don't know if that was one of them in particular, but it's a pretty expensive set for a one-time use, so I do suspect that it was actually shot in a legitimate lab. There's one tissue sample left, and it's from Howard's spinal column, and they're going to be able to check that to see if he really was Howard Graves that was buried and disseminated through five other people. From here, we cut to Lauren's going away party. Again, establishing she has been with this company a long time, and this meant a lot to her, so there's got to be a significant reason for her to be leaving. Maybe Howard's death is enough? Maybe not. But at this point, she goes into Howard's office. 
sort of taking one last look around before she leaves. The door closes behind her. She turns around, and there's Mr. Durland, again trying to put on the comforting face and saying, well, you're going to leave without saying goodbye? This is the point where he really turns from comforting to menacing. So not just holding her head before when he said he can't let you leave. Now he's saying, I know how we're told you. If it ever gets out, I won't waste my time trying to pin the source. I'll go straight to you. There's no pretense of pretending this is not a threat. And this is also when Lauren says, Howard told me you killed him, which throws Durland off long enough for Lauren to get out of the office. And here she's trying to get up pretty quickly. When Mulder spoke to her earlier, he did leave his card saying, call me anytime. This is my direct line. She calls the cell phone, which again speaks to the age of the episode. He pulls out one of the bulkier cell phones that we've ever seen, extends the antenna. Yeah, cell phones were not particularly common in 1993, but again, it does mark the age of the show more so from the props than the style. And at this point, Scully's seen enough lab work that, yes, she is convinced Howard Graves really and truly is dead. From there, we cut to Lauren again at middle of the night. She's packing up. She's getting ready to leave right now. She's not waiting for proper movers. A vehicle pulls up out front. We don't get a clear look at who's in it right away. We do see this is not Mulder and Scully. And that's exactly who Lauren is expecting. She hears knocking on the door. And again, she's relieved. She's going to the door. Still a little bit agitated, but more comfortable. And something is not letting her open the door. And this is when the special effects for the series really come into play. We see a lot of furniture moving on its own. We see lights sparking and blowing out. And we see part of what seems to be frightening Lauren. So she's as afraid for her attackers as for herself. This is one of the moments when the special effects do get a little bit limited. We see sort of a a blurry humanoid shape walking through the room, and it does seem a little bit cheesy. And just because of the timing, when Lauren's eyes are tracking it across, it doesn't quite line up. Now again, that's not something we can hold against the actress. There was nothing there. And just by the nature of the shot, she didn't have something to follow with the eye line, or if she did off camera, the special effects guys didn't match it. But her attackers are attacked themselves. And one of them even has her throat crushed. And again, early days of CGI, that was a fairly impressive shot. So it's a weird mix of things that work and things that don't work. And again, Mulder sees things Scully doesn't. Mulder and Scully pull up. Mulder comes rushing in. Somehow he gets to the house about 20 or 30 seconds sooner than Scully does, who was running up the walk behind them from the passenger side. So she didn't have to run around the car. Mulder breaks in. He sees one of the attackers suspended in the air. And he's choked there for a while, long enough that Mulder knows exactly what he sees. The guy drops just before Scully comes in, and there's Lauren freaked out and crying in the corner. So at this point, we cut to an interrogation room, and again, it shows how capable of an agent Scully is. They're trying to get information from Lauren, but Lauren is giving nothing. She's just stonewalling, not even making eye contact. She's deliberately looking away, and won't even tell them who her attackers might have been. Lisa Waltz plays this character quite nicely, so we're not getting the impression that she's doubting her sanity. She knows what she's seeing. She believes it. She just knows how people are going to react to it, so she doesn't say a word. And Mulder's trying to open the door a little bit. He shows the enhanced photo that shows Howard in her home. But when the original investigating officers who were stonewalling Mulder and Scully right from the start burst in, Mulder hides that photo. So he's taking it out and he is still keeping his cards close to his chest. And this is when they're accosted saying, we need to know everything you know about this. And Scully's saying, you're the ones withholding information from us. There's a bit of a confrontation out here. When they don't get anything, Mulder and Scully start to walk away. This is when we find out that there's part of an investigation and that the company Lauren works for had been selling information to terrorists. And they're saying that they don't know how much she's involved. Your actions impede their investigation. If she doesn't talk, she'll go free. They lose their chance to break the company. 
and the investigating officer says he can make her talk. And we get a lot of Mulder's sly humor as Mulder steps forward and says, my advice, don't get rough with her. So Mulder's figured out, yeah, Howard is still here in the afterlife, acting as a poltergeist, protecting Lauren. We cut to a bit later when those agents have given up on getting information from her. Mulder and Scully get their turn. And again, Lauren's saying, I'm not going to talk to you. So Mulder's response is, okay, you're free to go. Lauren gets to the door and she's very hesitant about going through it. She can't go back to that house. And this is when Mulder starts the conversation about Howard Graves and how he knows that Howard is watching over her. You see this gets a reaction from Scully and from Lauren. So Lauren's thinking, okay, maybe this is someone I can talk to. And she has been stressed. So now she opens up and she tells them basically everything. She found out about the deals that they were making, lots of parts, paying insane prices for them, and how Howard found out that these parts were being used to attack American soldiers. People were dying. Part of the interrogation, Lauren reveals that yes, the company was trading. When Howard was forced to face the real consequences, of actual soldiers dying based on these parts, he tried to stop. And she thought that he committed suicide out of guilt, but now realizes that he was killed instead. And this is one of the points where we see what kind of agent Scully is. Her main goal is to close the case. So she plays along saying, okay, well, let's make your statements, acting as though she believes every word Lauren says to get a statement from her. Mother even confronts her saying, what are you talking about? You don't believe this. But again, it comes down to Scully's character. Her goal is to solve the tangible case. And it puts them a little bit at odds because Mulder was seeing this as an opportunity to get concrete evidence of spectral activity by recording what Howard Graves is doing in the poltergeist form. Whereas Scully just says, these are terrorists killing people, let's stop them. At any rate, despite the fact that they have conflicting motivations, Mulder does recognize, yeah, there is a case to solve here. So he goes along with Scully's plan as they're putting together a tax force that will go to HTG and look for evidence of the sale of restricted manufactured parts to terrorists. Now, Scully is the one taking point briefing this task force, despite the fact that Mulder is her senior officer in the bureau, and she's not even part of the group that started the case. Mulder is playing along, but he is visibly upset. So you can see, yeah, it's not what he wanted, but he is seeing the value in Scully's plan to solve a tangible case and have that come out of the X-Files office. And Lauren agrees to go along just because of her familiarity with the offices and the likelihood that she is going to be the one that helps them find the evidence wherever it's stashed in Dorland's office. The task force comes in, and again, we're back to Steadicam, and again, we're back to a sequence that doesn't really feel like typical TV up to this point. As I've mentioned before, a lot of TV shows, they'll just have a couple cameras, sometimes just one, sometimes as many as two, three, or four, set up in stationary locations. As the task force is coming through, we see a lot of steady cam work, and we see a lot of what are known as inserts. So these are very quick shots where you have moved the camera to get pictures of people going through drawers, going through boxes. It's something that takes a fair amount of time to set up, and it's not that easy. And at the end of the raid, we see again Mulder is reading Dorland. So that's where most of his investigative ability comes through. Some of it is knowledge, some of it is intelligence, but a lot of it is reading people. And he recognizes Dorlin is not breaking a sweat. They're nowhere close to the evidence, and he knows it's not going to be here. So he goes to talk to Lauren, who's still tearing Dorlin's office apart. And Dorlin steps in, sees her doing it, and he's the one that says, no, I've been more than cooperative. She's not an agent. She has no right to come in here and destroy my personal property. At this point, things get agitated. Dorlin actually calls Lauren a bitch, which again sets up what age range they're targeting for, especially on 1994 TV. He attacks her, and he gets attacked himself by something intangible. The lights start blowing out, and Lauren is saying, don't kill him. Now, this is one of the points where it makes sense for Scully not to be able to see it. She hears the light bulbs blowing. She goes charging back to the office, but the door won't open. So whatever Howard's doing is keeping the door closed and keeping them trapped in there. There's a big atmospheric disturbance. Papers go blowing everywhere, and the letter opener 
that had been part of that little altercation between Lauren and Dorland floats up in the air, rips the wallpaper apart, and reveals the evidence they're looking for stored on a three and a half inch format floppy disk. Again, it's pretty much the only thing that dates the show as part of 1993. That and the 4x3 aspect ratio, but even that is not going to last till the end of the series. Uh, X-Files was the first network series to be run 16 by 9 It wasn't the first major TV series, but it was the first on the networks. Babylon 5, to my knowledge, is the first TV series that filmed in 16 by 9 That was a cable show, so it's not quite the same stature as far as the records go. But one thing we'll get Babylon 5 is they understood how to shoot in 16 by 9 Even when the X-Files makes that transition in Season 5, they weren't completely prepared for it. They were filming in 16 by 9 but they were still very much composing shots for the 4x3 broadcast. At any rate, at this point, it's wrapped up enough that Lauren feels ready to move on. Again, it's wrapping up at night. So Lauren is just moving away from here, getting out with her U-Haul well after dark. So the show is really trying to establish as much nighttime as it can. And it that becomes a big part of the feel of the series. And even wrapping up Mulder and Scully are talking about going to see the Liberty Bell. And Scully's reaction is, it's a big bell with a big crack and a big line. So from here, the final shot is, again, that classic X-Files closure. How much closure do we really have? We see Lauren at her new job with her new boss saying, this page you handed me was 25 minutes ago. Uh, Maybe that's the way they work back east, but here in the Midwest, punctuality is a virtue. And her coffee mug starts to rattle. We see Lauren, afraid, starting to panic, thinking Howard's still out there, protecting her and still attacking anyone who crosses her. When her boss says, anytime a truck goes by, the whole building shakes, we need a new office. So again, it's left up to the viewer to decide, was that really a truck or is Howard still out there? And the closing shot is Lauren at her new desk looking at the placard from Howard with the Ben Franklin quote. So it is a nice episode. It's an interesting monster of the week. Again, pushing the limits of the visual effects. They will get much better as the series progresses. But again, it's limited by the budget that they had in this first season. So we get a nice story. We get a good feel for the Mulder-Scully relationship and how they are working to make the world a better place, but for different reasons and with different goals, especially in the whole choice between documenting spectral phenomena and wrapping up terrorists. And again, Scully sees the political side of it. She's grabbing the tangible case that they know they could put in the win column for the X-Files office. Anyway, that wraps up this episode. In two weeks, we're going to be checking out Ghost in the Machine, which is the only episode of the X-Files to specifically reference Halloween. And it's another one written by Alex Ganza and Howard Gordon, who previously brought us Conduit. So I hope you'll join us in two weeks for that.